Hello everyone, before we get started with the episode, I just want to thank everyone again who participated in our previous episode, the our inaugural mailbag episode with me and my wife Katie. Just wanted to let you know that you can feel free to leave send any voice messages or any Facebook messages on the Story Is podcast so that we have a hear from you and find out what you what you would like and what you think and uh, we can have another one of those mailbag episodes which I found to be a lot of fun and I hope you did too so if you'd like more of those uh, please do send us more voice messages on the Anchor app or also you can send them via Facebook message alright next we're going to be getting into my new series where I'll be talking about another one of uh, subjects I'm really passionate about So we're going from faith to fighting, from the Bible to boxing. This is me talking about Ali, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman. And this first episode focuses in George Foreman and Ali's fight in Zaire. I hope you like the episode. I have a problem with Michael Mann. Specifically with his movie, Ali, starring Will Smith. It is a two and a half hour long movie. It talks about Muhammad Ali's life, his marriages, his faith, his Muslim faith, his relationship with Malcolm X, his relationship with Howard Cosell, many of his fights. And it concludes with Ali's fight with George Foreman, known as the rumble in the jungle. My problem? He left out Ali's greatest fight of his career. His third fight with Joe Frazier, known as the Thrilla in Manila. I recently re-watched the movie Ali, and my reaction was the same as when I, as when I first saw it years ago. How could he leave out Ali's fight in Manila? The next three episodes are my case for why the Thrilla in Manila is Ali's greatest fight. We will look at the rivalry of Ali and Frazier in and out of the ring, the tremendous fight itself, and the aftermath. But before we can do that, so it's fair, and everyone is on the same page, we will go to the event in Kinshasa, Zaire, on October 30th, 1974. The Rumble in the Jungle. And I'll let you compare which is the better fight. I'll let you be the jury, and I, not only a storyteller, but also a lawyer, making my case. It is my case that the thrill in Manila is crucial to Ali's career and should be included in any account of his life. But first... Before we can do that, I'm going to also pretend or think that, assume that you, my jury, knows nothing about either one of these fights. So to be fair, I must spend this first episode to tell you about the rumble in the jungle. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to The Story Is. Let's get ready to rumble. Muhammad Ali, the former heavyweight champion, who lost his title not in the boxing ring, but in a U.S. court 
because he refused to participate in the Vietnam War. He lost his title, his boxing license, and three years of his prime. He was reinstated to box, but he lost in his attempt to regain his title, being beaten by Joe Frazier. His title. Now the man standing in his way of regaining his title was now Big George Foreman. George Foreman was not always the lovable grill salesman. When Muhammad Ali agreed to fight him, George Foreman was an unstoppable force in the boxing ring. Foreman destroyed Joe Frazier. He pummeled Ken Norton. Two men who beat Ali. Two men who could not stand toe-to-toe with George Foreman. Foreman could not be beat. Adding more drama to a high-stakes fight, Ali said that this would be his last fight, his last rumble. Even more drama upon that, the, the setting was Zaire in Africa. Norman Mailer wrote, Africa is shaped like a gun. Zaire, the trigger. The government of Zaire locally put a crackdown on crime in the area. Crime was in fact brought to a new low by the random execution of prisoners. They were set behind bars in prisons that were located in the basement of the stadium where the fight would take place. Some thought more death would occur in the boxing ring above. In the Ali locker room, it wasn't a rally. It was a funeral. Surrounded by teary eyes and sullen faces, Ollie starts yelling, Don't you know I'm going to dance? I'm going to dance! Everyone joins in with him. Ollie does dance at first. As As the fight begins, the bell rings. Ollie does dance. And he also throws lead right hands. I don't notice this, I'm not an expert, but from Norman Mailer's account from the documentary When We Were Kings, he talks about how Ali does this unorthodox strategy of using lead right hands to hit Foreman in that first round. Traditionally as a boxer, if you're right-handed, your most powerful fist would be your right hand. You'd have it further back and your left hand is your lead, and you have it in front of you. Ali was throwing the right hand first, and that punch takes longer to get to his opponent than his left hand would. But he's throwing the right hand first instead of traditionally setting up the right hand with the left hand, creating more of an opening, hitting your opponent, and then following through with the right. Ali was betting on that he was fast enough to get that hand in there, that right hand, to surprise George Foreman with and connect. And he did. And he would use the strategy of a lead right hand in a a shocking manner. And then if George got anywhere near him, he would tie him up or he would 
lean against the ropes, and he would just guard against George's large, long arms wailing away at him. Ali proceeds to lead the cheering in between rounds. And into the second round and into the third round, there's a similar pattern. He leans back against the ropes during the fight and allows Foreman to just wail away on him. And Foreman, much like he did in training, when he just wailed away at those heavy bags to a point where you could see a dent in the heavy bag. George wailed away at Ali when he leaned up against the ropes, and he just kept swinging and kept swinging. Much to the fear of Ali's corner, they told him to get off the ropes. They kept telling him, move around. But Ali is known for not really... He listened to his corner, but ultimately what he did in the ring was up to him. And he continued to lean against the ropes. And Foreman continues to swing at him until Foreman wears himself out. Foreman starts to swing wildly, running into the ropes. He keeps swinging and missing. There's no power in his fists anymore. Ollie explodes with a combination of punches that eventually, in the eighth round, as this pattern continues, Ollie is able to send George Foreman tumbling down. Foreman starts to fall. Big George Foreman, the man who had destroyed all other opponents, who was known for non-stop punching until he was physically separated by the referee, was going down. Ali refused to hit Foreman on the way down, preserving the beauty of Foreman's fall to the canvas. Sitting on his back, George Foreman, the heavyweight champion, is counted out. Ali is one. The impossible has been achieved. The title that had been taken away from Ali through the court system had finally been won back. This is the fight that movies are made about. This is the fight documentaries are made about. This is the fight that books are written about. This is a great event, a great moment in sports, in boxing, and of all of Muhammad Ali's fights to emphasize this, this is the wrong one. Here's my case against the Rumble in the Jungle. First, the fight is only eight rounds long. Second, they are eight rounds of mostly Ali resting against the ropes and Foreman swinging at him. Third, Foreman and Ali never fight again. Why not? There are many reasons, but one of these is because no one wanted to see that again. The fight cannot stand on its own. It is only compelling in the context of Zaire and the new government and Africa on display successfully hosting a gigantic event. If you add in all the interesting people surrounding the fight, Don King, the promoters, Bundini, the entertaining motivator in Ali's corner, 
known for putting together the famous rhymes like float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Also, Ali lied. This wasn't his last fight. He fought for years afterwards. Another reason? On assignment in Zaire, Hunter S. Thompson didn't even bother to go to the fight. Fellow writer George Plimpton asked him about the fight. Hunter responded with, What fight? Oh, I, I didn't go to the fight. I stayed in the hotel swimming pool. I laid on my back looking at the moon, coming up, and the only person in the hotel came and stared at me a long time before he went away. Maybe he thought I was a corpse. I floated there, naked. I had thrown a pound and a half of marijuana into the pool. It was what I had left, and I'm not trying to smuggle it out of this country, and it stuck together. There in a sort of clot, and there it began to spread out in a green slick. It was very curious, floating in that stuff, though it's not the best way to obtain a high. The rumble is only a chapter in the book of Ali. This fight is more of a major turning point for George Foreman. The loss to Ali was described to have broken something in Foreman, sending him into a depression that eventually sent him to Toronto in, the, in April of 1975, where he would fight five unknown fighters that he outweighed by 30 or 40 pounds, back-to-back -back in front of jeering fans. It was an astounding piece of footage. In an event pr promoted by Don King, George Foreman would fight unknown after unknown, and with Muhammad Ali looking on, jeering on, he would fight opponent after opponent in three-round fights that he thought would go pretty quickly, that he would just knock them out and go on to the next one. Well, it didn't work out quite that way. The first opponent was Alonzo Johnson, who hadn't been active in over 10 years, who offered up little opposition and was hacked up in two rounds. Immediately afterwards, the crowd began chanting Ali's name which only served to get Foreman even angrier. A smaller, more inexperienced heavyweight by the name of Jerry Judge then got into the ring and appeared to rock Foreman after being knocked down in the first round. A crushing right hand in round two put Judge down for the count. But Foreman went after him again after taunting him moments later, and a brawl nearly broke out between the two teams before order was restored and what commentator Howard Cosell then called a carnival. Again, Foreman talked to Ali throughout the entire affair, between rounds, in clinches, during the fight, after defeating the poor overmatched opponents. Ali's presence was a distraction and only reinforced that he had gotten way into George Foreman's head and forced him to be the villain. The crowd continued to boo Foreman. Next to suffer Foreman's wrath was Terry Daniels, a um, Texas heavyweight with no significant wins on his record and a loss to Joe Frazier. With 30 seconds remaining in the second round, a visibly tiring George Foreman motioned for the fight to be stopped, and it was. But Daniels objected and began battling with Foreman, again as the referee argued with cornermen away from the action. It was short-lived, but then the teams began fighting and Foreman shoved someone from his own corner. It went from bad to weird. 
The fourth opponent, Charlie Polite, blew kisses at Foreman during pre-fight instructions and hit the canvas in round two without a punch being thrown. But he lasted through the third and final round, repeatedly shaking his head to say he hadn't been hurt. Polite said, Foreman degraded himself by failing to knock out all five of us. He made a farce of it. One of Foreman's previous victims, Boone Kirkman, was the final opponent, and he too lasted the distance as Foreman struggled to get much offense going, despite Kirkman in the opening round. Despite flooring Kirkman in the opening round. In one last showing of insanity, Foreman rambled his way through a post-fight interview with Cosell, again making excuses for losing to Ali and repeatedly assuring viewers that the the fights weren't fake. Real or fake, nobody really cared. This is an embarrassing display. Started by the Rumble, sends Foreman into eventual exile, and after a loss to Jimmy Young, into retirement. After the fight with Jimmy Young, George Foreman experiences what I would describe some sort of physical and existential crisis. He has a panic attack. He says he experiences things like stigmata. And he has this just incredible feeling of needing to do something else with his life. And he quits boxing. And he actually becomes an ordained minister and becomes a preacher and spends many of his years of his life doing that. The big mistake about the Rumble is that it's not the end of an Ali story. It's actually the beginning of George Foreman's hero's journey. Foreman goes from being an angry young man who was feared to a depressed former champion to an ordained pastor to an older man who is beloved for beating the odds and eventually winning back the heavyweight championship at the age of 45. My final thoughts on this episode. In my research for this episode, I was relieved to find I wasn't the only person who was surprised that Michael Mann left out much of the Ali Frazier rivalry in the movie. He entitled the review Ali Doesn't Go the Distance. So I'm not crazy. At least me and the, another reviewer agree with each other. And he wasn't sure why Michael Mann left that out, as it is so crucial to Ali's life and career. I wonder that too. The best I can come up with is, is that it didn't fit the narrative that Michael Mann had for his film. And I think that is something that happens too frequently in a lot of things. In stories we tell, in the news that we hear, in tweets we send out, in conversations we have. Because it didn't fit the narrative some information gets left out. Nothing gets lied about. Nothing gets told incorrectly. But, but, but because it doesn't fit the narrative, it's not included. 
Now you may be thinking, Sam, you're making too big of a deal out of this. And maybe I am. But for the sake of my own narrative, come with me. We miss out on a key event of Ali's life. And if you don't watch any other film, any other documentary like What's My Name? Parts 1 and 2, which was on HBO, really good, or read any other books about Ali, that's the only story that you know. That's it. Is Michael Mann's version of Ali's life. And wouldn't you be upset, especially if you are enthusiastic about the subject matter, to learn that there was so much more out there? And I think that can be dangerous and infuriating when that happens in life at all, or in the news. When you find out one thing about an event and then it turns out there's some something else that happened that you weren't told about at all that very well could have changed your perspective on what happened and many times that doesn't you don't hear about part two of an event because of a narrative so whether it's the media or movie makers I caution them to not be slaves to, to narratives because it causes them to water down their subject matter and they miss out on the opportunity to make a real impact. And nothing makes a greater impact or a greater punch than the whole truth. Next time we're going to get into the Ali-Fraser rivalry. Until then, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. My sources for this episode are the book The Fight by Norman Mailer, the Deadspin article The Night a Broken-Hearted George Foreman Boxed Five Men by Greg Howard, The Night George Foreman Fought Five by Jerry Botter at flowcombat.com, and The Stacks, the time Hunter S. Thompson passed out in a pool by George Plimpton. Also, much of what I talked about also can be found in the HBO documentary two-part series, What's My Name? We'll see you next time.